2: pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cashback. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.
1: Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th.
0: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the ION Travel podcast. It's been another tough week in the travel and tourism industry. More airlines dropping cities, grounding planes, more hotels closing with little hope of ever reopening their doors, thousands of restaurants shutting for good. We've got a lot to talk about, not just when we can move forward, but how. This week, I'll chat with John Ostrower, editor-in-chief of The Air Current, on the real bottom line of air travel. Not just leisure or business travelers, but the planes themselves. Then, Arnie Weissman, editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly, on who's really traveling again, with some surprises. First up, John Ostrower. My next guest, formerly the aviation editor for CNN, and now he launched a great a great website called The Air Current. John Ostrower. Hey, John.
1: Hey, Peter, thanks for having
0: me. You know, there's just so much I want to talk to you about. We're going to start with, you know, the airlines sort of like this race to the bottom right now where they want to shrink as fast as they possibly can in the absence of additional federal rescue money in a relief package that really expires in a couple of weeks on September 30th. So it's right around the corner. And of course, you've already seen the announcements. Many of our listeners have of massive furloughs for some of the airlines, a lot of early retirement packages. Um... And of course, parking a lot of airplanes finalized by parking a lot of routes, uh, uh, routes that are going to come out of the system, as many as 30 per airline in the next like month and a half. So it doesn't paint a very pretty picture, does it?
1: Well, it, it does not. I mean, this is this is by far the most serious crisis aviation in the U.S. or aviation globally has ever faced. I mean, you know, you think about 9-11 I mean, people, you know, we're in a in, you know, think about uh, you know, September 10th and then September 11th happens and then se- the se- world has changed forever by September 12th. Here we are more than six months since the WHO declared that we were in the middle of a pandemic. And I don't think we are in a post-COVID world yet. And so the airlines literally don't know what shape or form the industry will take, and until we get to that point, we're really not going to know how the airlines are going to even be able to respond, and and how, where they should be putting their effort for how they move forward as airlines.
0: Exactly. Yeah, you know, everybody's flying blind, aren't they? They are, and you know, they're
1: for the most part. What we've seen is that there are really two things that are going to guide people back to flying. You know, first a vaccine, that's kind of the starting gun, and then the wide availability of that that vaccine. Uh, You know, Scott Kirby at United Airlines said just the other day that he doesn't think that that will come until potentially as late as uh, next year. So once that happens, then you have to ask, Okay, do travelers, whether business or leisure, have the wherewithal, the resources to actually go anywhere? Do they have somewhere to go? Do they have somewhere, uh, someone to visit? Do they have someone who can receive them? So, you know, again, getting just getting to that point, you know, the US Airlines didn't put themselves in hibernation during, you know, the the spring and summer months. They they kind of went full bore and said, Hey, well, you know, let's throw stuff out there and see if we can spur a recovery and see what sticks. And here we are heading into the fall with the leisure travelers have, have fallen away and business travelers uh, staying home. And it's looking like a very, very bleak picture heading into the winter.
0: You're right. It is looking like a very bleak picture. The fourth quarter historically has not been great for any airline, but they look at all their forward-looking bookings anyway, and they're not happy with what they're seeing.
1: No, nor, nor, nor should they be. And they're not going to be until, until really we are on the other side of this crisis.
0: And so as a result, it's sort of like this perfect storm where you're going to shrink the airlines, you're going to shrink their fleet, you're going to shrink their route network. Um, and then the people who are flying are really the people who have to fly. And the airlines tried to you know to discount fares, to stimulate traffic, and it didn't make a difference. Um, so now I, I, I have every reason to believe airfares are going to go up.
1: Well, certainly, you know, e- economics of this business would, would point in that direction. You know, certainly if you have less capacity and fewer seats to fly and fixed costs to cover, that in, in under, you know, a certain level of demand for those who absolutely must fly, yes, they, they Probably the price is, is going to start to, to tick up again. But, you know, the, the reality is that, that what I think the biggest fear that a lot of folks have that they're, that's not really being articulated is that we're sort of, you know, that it's kind of it's not a, a, a wave that kind of flattens. We go down and then kind of come back up again, but that it's going to stay permanently down for a level for, for, a, for a long while. And that's going to cause a total reformation of how business is done in terms of how they attract passengers, how they attract business travelers, what the product is, and and, and how that fundamentally alters the industry literally for, for what will no doubt be a fallout that we will see for
0: decades to come. You know, I want to divide between business travel and leisure travel because my understanding with, with the executives of the airlines that I've talked to, John, is that they've sort of given up on business travel for at least the next year. And they, they're pitting their hopes on the slow rebuild led by leisure travelers.
1: Yeah, well, that, that certainly uh, it doesn't that doesn't rely on someone else approving your travel. You know, you, when you're when you're a business traveler, you you know your 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 boss, your supervisor, some system has to say yes, it's okay to go, and you have a reason to go. So the barriers to doing that are far lower with with, with leisure travelers. Uh, certainly, you know, I think we, we've you know, I've, I've talked to a number of people over the summer who said that they actually either rented or bought Winnebagos instead of get on airplanes. So you know, for for you know, visiting friends and relatives so they don't have to set it off the fly or they don't have to stay in hotels. So, you know, you, you begin to see a shift in even the, the leisure traveler uh behavior. You know, but I guess you know, what we also saw was uh, commensurate with all this increased travel, you also saw a an increase in
0: COVID cases. Uh, I talked about two words, deception and basically disturbing. Both words used in a scathing report from Congress on their investigation into the Boeing 737 MAX development, its recertific- its certification, and maybe even its recertification, and about its relationship with the FAA. I mean, pretty damning stuff, right, John?
1: It, by far, this, the, the report that came out of uh, the House Transportation Infra- Infrastructure Committee really highlights a, a very... It's a really damning picture of how Boeing and the FAA went about certifying the 737 Max, and you know all the the, the missed opportunities to to alter course, uh, and I think that, that you know really spells you know ultimately a process breakdown about how this you know whole thing proceeded seemingly normally, but again going back in retrospect and looking at all these different opportunities to to change course uh, and and uh, account for this the design of the 737 different way really is just you see that over and over and over again in in, in what the the house ended up collecting over its over its eighteen month investigation,
0: and it's my it's it's my guess that some people might actually go to prison on this because the actual behavior, in my estimation, was criminal. You know when you talk about criminal negligence, it's written all over this, uh, but it goes back to the basic relationship that the Federal Aviation Administration has with both manufacturers and with airlines, the two areas that they're supposed to regulate. They're not their clients. They're not their partners. I remember, John, being in a a meeting at United Airlines, and you may have even been there that day. I think you were. When uh, one of the operation guys at United stood up and said, you know, we are going to get the plane recertified. We're working with our partners at the FAA. And I stood up immediately and raised my hand and said, excuse me. Did you just define the Federal Aviation Administration as your partner? Isn't that the root problem here? And uh, I didn't get a good answer. Because if you go back to the history of the FAA, and we're talking decades, uh, the people that actually certify any airplane, whether it's Boeing or in the old days, McDonnell Douglas or Lockheed or Convair, uh, the people who certify that plane as airworthy are actually on the payroll of the manufacturer. They're called FAA-designated inspectors. Now, if that doesn't scream conflict of interest, I don't know what does. Well, the, the amazing
1: thing is, is that that discussion is not new. I mean, like you, like you just said, this, is, this goes back decades. I mean, when, when you right. look at, at uh, you know the, what happened when the McDonnell Douglas DC-10 was grounded yep. back in the late 70s, there was yep. all this discussion around delegated authority and and, how, and, and how, whether or not the FAA was able to act as an adequate uh, regulator of, of uh, those they were tasked with regulating.
0: And, and by and, the know, way, and by so, the way, you know, John, in that particular case, I know it so well. Uh, American Airlines maintenance guys figured out they could save four hours per engine change in maintenance by violating the maintenance manual and using a forklift truck instead of doing it with with pulleys and levers, which violated the maintenance manual. And they actually went and told the FAA they were going to violate it, and the FAA said okay. And on the plane that crashed, American Flight 191 in Chicago, which by the way still ranks. As the worst aviation disaster in this country in history, uh, on the plane in question, they were f- putting on a new engine, and they had to fasten it with special bolts. And they had two of the bolts in, two of the four bolts in, when the when the lunch whistle blew. So they went to lunch, and during lunch, the forklift lost pressure, which is the reason why McDonald Douglas didn't want them to use a forklift truck. It bent one of the bolts and broke the other, but they didn't know it they came back and installed the other two bolts they flew the plane empty to chicago on the friday of memorial day weekend back in 1979 and they took on a full load of passengers for los angeles and we know what happened next uh, so yeah. but this we knew this you you're absolutely right this this is this is over 40 years ago just about
1: yeah and you know and, and when you look at the dc 10 i mean i've spent uh a lot of time in the last two years looking at the history of it because it is so similar to the 737 max you know a lot of the you know certainly the root causes were different around the maintenance of, of the engine and how it was attached to the aircraft but there are there were definitely issues around around looking at the same core issues as aircraft manufacturers which is how do humans interact with their technology and how do uh, how does an aircraft respond to damage and it's never just one thing Right. You know, in the case of the MAX, you know, a lot of the certification, because it was a derivative, they didn't have to look at all the different inter- broader interactions of, of the changes that they were making, which they believed were localized on the
0: airplane. Um, about when they're going to actually get the 737 MAX back in the air. And every date they told us it was going to happen never happened. Uh, now we're being told that uh, the tests are being done and it could get recertified in the next two months. Does that mean it's going to be flying before the end of the year?
1: Very likely, yes. Uh, you know, certainly we've been through, you know, almost two years since uh, the first crash in Indonesia back in 2018. Uh, you know, we're into the final stretch right now. Uh, the the regulators around the world and pilots from around the world are actually gathered in London to look at. Uh, what the minimum training requirements, revised training requirements are going to be for the max when it comes back in service. That is one of the major last hurdles that that has come with this process. You know, where we are now in the process is more kind of a, a, a more predictable sort of steps that, that has always been anticipated. Everything before now was sort of Boeing and the FAA and supplier and Boeing suppliers kind of playing whack-a-mole as as they learn more about the airplane and they, they adjust for changes they have to make and, and edge cases and so on and so forth to fix the design. So you know we're in the home stretch here. You know as as we've we've spent this whole time talking about you know COVID and now we're talking about the Max. You know when when these two when the Max comes back in service these two things are going inter- to intersect because airlines are going to get a lot of new airplanes that have been sitting for a long time coming back into operation. And so you start to, to see this sort of you know, swirl of, of, of chaos, potentially, as all these new airplanes are trying to come back into service at a time when people aren't flying. So it, it's just the, the, the mess is only going to get bigger heading into uh, the end of the year, certainly from, a, from, a, from the economic complication that comes along with that for the airlines.
0: And I think there's another issue as well, and that's consumer trust in a plane. Uh, Boeing is now trying to re- t- rename the plane, right?
1: Well, Boeing uh, has not officially dropped MAX from the name of the family. There was a, they made an announcement um, uh, earlier, in, uh, earlier in the fall which focused on uh, removing the MAX from a derivative. So instead of the 737 MAX 8, it would just be known as the 737-8 uh, a lot of this is, is semantics, but the, the, the issue is, is really, you know, the only way that this plane is going to re-earn its place in aviation is by flying safely day in and day out. And, you know, just going back to the McDonnell Douglas for a minute, they tried to rebrand the DC-10 also, and yep. uh, they tried to call it the MD-100, and it didn't work. And, you know, the, the DC-9 Super 80 became the MD-80 because of the DC-10 crash, because the dc brand had been so tarnished so you know again history repeating itself but what it's what, what is ultimately going gonna you know allow this this plane to uh, to really earn its place back in, in aviation is is ultimately flying day in and day out regularly and safely.
0: and of course that brings me up to the next item what forbids on the prices right the 787 Dreamliner which a number of their planes were grounded uh, by Boeing. And by, not by the FAA, but by Boeing concerned about some structural component issues with components made of composites.
1: Yeah, so uh, several weeks ago, uh, Boeing uh, had c- completed an internal analysis that they found that two manufacturing issues together, uh, an issue with uh, composite skin, surface smoothness, and, and how they built the structure and how they put gaps in the structure that are designed to be there, or fill gaps that are designed to be there, uh, that... Uh, compromise the structural strength of a of key part of the back of the airplane and immediately Boeing pulled the pulled eight airplanes out of service that were found to have both of these issues um, appearing on, on these
0: aircraft and it, and it both of those, and to, all those planes were manufactured in South Carolina right uh,
1: so so all of the the planes were actually uh, manufactured in both Washington state and and South Carolina but okay. the, the, the particular component in question uh, was actually done at a, a, a sub facility. Not the final assembly line where they where they pull all the pieces together but yes that that the join in particular where this is focused on was done at a uh, a smaller facility in south carolina
0: yes I'm, i must tell you john and you may disagree with me on this but if we go back to the history of how planes got made and how prototypes got certified as airworthy they were always put on a test bed and every single component part was taken Component part was taken to failure. That's how they were able to write the manuals. That's what they knew what the plane could and could not do or would not do. The 787 was the first time under pressure from Boeing, I might add, that the FAA sort of like looked the other way and said, okay, and allowed it to be certified on computer. I still have a problem with that. Well,
1: the the certification on computer is more limited than, there are plenty of tests in the development of an aircraft that are full-scale tests that require uh, wings to be bent to the point that they're broken, fuselages to be uh, inflated uh, to the point where where they they fail, Uh, so there's an enormous amount of physical testing that still goes on.
0: My thanks to John. So who's really going to drive travel when it returns? And what will it mean to actually buy an airline ticket without those dreaded ticket change fees? Travel Weekly editor-in-chief Arnie Weissman checks in. My next guest, a regular on this show, as well as our weekly travel show on PBS called The Travel Detective. He's the editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly, the Honorable Arnie Weissman. Hey, Arnie. Hey, Peter. How are you? See, I always come up with a different title feed. Tonight, you're just honorable. Uh, uh, uh,
3: Honorable's nice.
0: Okay, so interesting thing that you were uh, you've been writing about, and that is, as the travel industry starts to recover, and it has started to recover, um, you know, not in a in a huge way, but in a in a measurable way. What I find interesting is that who's leading the pack? It's not the folks with money; it's young people.
3: Absolutely, the the, the for the young people, COVID nineteen is a boomer disease. Uh, it's it's not uh, their feeling uh, that, A, it's not going to impact them very much, even if they get it, and, B, uh, they're at a time of life when they want to see the world. Their sense of adventure uh, is quite strong. And so when you look at the risk-reward ratio that they're looking at, they want to be out in the world and actually, in many ways, If you were traveling now, it's a great time to travel. The the prices are very low in many, many places, and uh, so the deals are out there. And if you have got the time and inclination, you're going to go. And uh, it's actually been uh, shown with some data. Virtuoso, the group of travel agencies, the high-end luxury group, did a survey of uh, all their clients. And they have... Clientele around the world, uh, it does tend to be higher-end, but uh, the older people got who responded to their sur- survey, the less likely they were to travel. So gens X, Y, and Z uh, are leading the pack, and the boomers are sitting at home.
0: Interesting story. And, and of course, they're also picking different destinations, I suppose.
3: Yes. They're, they're, well, right. Right now, because of the various border requirements and closings and uh, the places that are closed to Americans in particular, there's uh, somewhat of a limitation on that. So they can only go where they'll be accepted, which right now is Mexico, and Mexico is, is far and away the best seller of of Americans going abroad right now, and some of the Caribbean islands. Uh, likewise, and there, you know, it's, it's a real hodgepodge uh, from ones who are requiring a negative COVID test within 72 hours uh, before arrival to uh, the Dominican Republic, which announced it's just going to do random tests on arriving passengers. So quite a variety. And then you also see things in the Caribbean that are interesting, for instance, Anguilla, uh, is putting on a $1,000 per head, although there's a family discount, um, surcharge, a COVID surcharge for coming right now. So they they want to make sure, they, if, if it's young, fine, but you got to have some money.
0: Whoops. <laughs> yeah. but, but then there, you know, look, as each island destination reopens, they're all having their own protocols. Jamaica is different than the Dominican Republic. The Dominican Republic is different from Grenada or the Cayman Islands. And the Cayman yeah, Islands, absolutely. and the Cayman Islands, the last time I looked, they wanted you to wear a button, you know, <laughs> that, that that didn't glow in the dark that said you were okay.
3: Yeah, that they they have that's a really interesting uh, thing that they're doing, which is that they're giving you. This is a type of technology that was developed for patients who leave the hospital but they still want to monitor them so it's something that measures your respiration your rate your heartbeat your temperature and it sends a signal back to whoever is collecting this data So uh, in the Caymans you I don't know if it's launched quite yet but they have announced it that you'll be wearing this button on your skin and if what it ultimately does is it allows you, to do certain things or not so if you want to board an airplane and you are showing that you've got a fever uh that your respiration maybe is a little shallow you're going to get a red light you're not going to be able to board the plane
0: wow well listen let's hope the buttons glow in the right direction for everybody but that, <laughs> yes. that brings up that brings up the other concept of what wearables right
3: right and you're seeing Singapore, it's mostly in, the, in the, uh, East Asia for now, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Korea, uh, and, and not everybody can travel there. So, for instance, with Singapore, they're only allowing their own residents in, and they're giving them, I believe it's a bracelet, that uh, they will ring an alarm somewhere if they leave their apartment, if they don't self-isolate for two weeks uh, after arrival. And they're quite serious about this. They they will if you are let's say a uh resident because you you're a foreign national but you have a work permit, you will lose that work permit. If you're a Singapore resident and citizen and you step out of your apartment, you will be fined and possibly once your isolation period is over, jailed.
0: Ooh. Yeah, that's that comes out of the category of no sense of humor. Um what's <laughs> what what's interesting about this is again everybody's got a different approach uh, to what a quarantine means you know i came back to new york from a flight in los angeles and i was met at the airport as all the passengers were by a representative of the new york state department of health who asked me who had me fill out a form and never checked the form information uh, that i wrote down against my id never checked it against my actual cell phone number i could have written anything on there and they would never would have known Uh, And needless to say, I I mean, I didn't lie, I put down all the right information, but nobody called me, nobody traced me, nobody tracked me. Um, It's, it's, um, it's, it is, uh, as someone else once said recently, it is what it is.
3: Yes, but what I think is uh, going to, you're going to see more and more, is this sort of So you have right now two parallel things going on. On one hand, you have the people who are very serious, who are um, not just taking names, but uh, addresses and making sure you're staying there. And then on the other hand, for instance, uh, Delta Airlines put out a press release saying that before a ticket would be issued, you would have to answer these questions basically saying uh, that you didn't have a fever and that you didn't just go somewhere where there was... uh, uh, high rates of, of, of the virus, but that is relying on your reporting, your self reporting. And in this case, if someone has already gotten to the airport and let's say they've been, they were in, in uh, Florida a week ago, they're not going to say that. They're just going to say, No, I, I'm fine, and, and people are going to get on. So the split between sort of self reporting and mandatory uh, observation. Uh, will sort itself out. And I think the the more, I personally as a traveler feel more reassured to know that there's some enforcement behind uh, the rules, that it's not sure. just everyone saying that they're being good.
0: No, I, I agree with you. And of course, while everybody's waiting for a vaccine, which we may be waiting for a while if we're, if we're talking about it from, from a practical application point of view, the real key, I think, is rapid response Reliable and widespread testing, and you know we're starting to see that, you know, and we we make get to a point where it is that widespread, reliable, rapid response testing that makes the difference in terms of whether a cruise ship sails or a cruise ship doesn't.
3: yeah, you're you're right. and in fact, travel agents uh, who have seen the slow uh, response to te- the testing taking a long time to get the results has been playing havoc on their business if they're selling a trip, and then but the person can't get the test in time to go. So two of these agency groups, one is called Signature Travel Network, uh, the other is called Frosch, have arranged a rapid testing for uh, their agents where, in the case of its signature, you'll be mailed a saliva testing kit where you has a return overnight uh, envelope, You get the results within 24 to 48 hours after you send it back, and a certification of your status. Uh, The other is a nasal swab, but they will do home visits for the frosh ones in L.A. and New York only right now, but they do hope to expand that
0: further. Arnie, a couple of weeks ago, uh, it actually happened on a Sunday, uh, United Airlines dropped a little bit of a bombshell and announced that they were quote-unquote permanently ending those draconian $200 ticket change fees. And to put things in perspective, those fees prior to the pandemic were earning United Airlines alone $600 million a year. So over a 10 year period, we're now at $6 billion. And all of a sudden they woke up on that Sunday and said, you know what, we don't like this anymore. We're gonna be real consumer friendly and, and and get rid of them. I had two questions when that happened is this really consumer friendly number 1 and number 2 what's their definition of permanent what's your definition of permanent arnie
3: uh, very good question and um let's start with with the first part is this consumer friendly and the answer is it depends on a couple of things so one <laughs> this i know you'd say vol- that. Yeah, so this was followed uh, the next day by Delta, and American who came out with their own versions of permanently uh, eliminating change fees. And uh, the United, none of them, by the way, have eliminated the fee for basic economy. So basic economy is where you are uh, getting your seat assigned to you, your middle seat, and uh, you've got nothing. You've got, you've You've got to pay for everything else, the ancillary fees. You've got to pay for luggage. You've got to pay for a meal. You've got to pay for overhead space beyond a certain point. So all those people who are getting the cheapest tickets will still have to change uh, the fee. It will still have a change fee. And this is actually part of the strategy um, for why they're doing it the way they're doing it, is to get people to buy out of basic economy because it's it's an incentive now. You have a disincentive to, to book it because you may face a change fee if there's plans changing. So, for instance, one big difference between American and United uh, is that there's no change fee, but if you're changing to a ticket that costs less than your original ticket, United pockets the difference. It could be much more than $200.
0: So see, see, in the that old days... Not, yeah. Yeah, in the old it's days there was a, friendly. no. In the old days, if American Airlines, or United for that matter, or Delta gave me a voucher for whatever reason, an overpayment or a refund, and I applied that voucher like a gift card for another fare that was less, the difference between what I paid on the fare on the, on the value of the voucher was then given to me in the form of another voucher, so I didn't lose any more money. Uh, for United Airlines to pocket the difference, I think is uh, not a very good way to go.
3: No. And, and you, I, I don't know that we've heard the last of this yet, because there's still announcements every day about uh, what other airlines are doing. Uh, Alaska and Hawaiian followed suit. Some of them, you really have to read the fine print a bit, because uh, some of them apply, for instance, to uh, Mexico and the Caribbean, and some do not. Uh, Hawaiian, uh, not all of them, for instance, uh, have that rule, the new rule effect, if you're going to Hawaii, but Hawaiian obviously does. And the the other thing that is kind of interesting um, about this, when it rolled out, if this were to have happened a year ago, this may have been rolled out to the top-tier loyalty uh, people, but it would not have been blanket. And I think it gets back to this idea that young people are the ones who are now disproportionately filling the airplanes that they need to appeal right now. They need cash flow now. And they'll get back to rewarding the most loyal flyers uh, specifically later. But at this point, it's actually the people who aren't uh, at high status with the airlines who are doing the flying more frequently. American Airlines did a whole report saying that it was uh, the average age of the flyer has gone dramatically down.
0: Well, here's one for you. When the United Airlines announced they were gonna do, do away with the change fees, I went, wow, well, you think the hotels will follow suit with those draconian resort fees? And the answer, at least in the short term, is absolutely not. I mean, can you imagine city hotels in the middle of the pandemic, operating at about you know 18% occupancy, charging you a resort fee when the pool is closed, the bar is closed, the gym is closed. I mean, it was a, it was a draconian charge before. Now it's a double insult.
3: Yeah, it, I mean, it's always been money for nothing, and I've, I've editorialized against it and edit, took the opportunity of the change fees to editorialize against the resort fees again. This is really uh, it, an ancillary fee. Even when you know the, the airlines hit their worst, at least you could see the value relative to not paying it. So like if you were if you had to pay for a bag to be checked, well the guy who didn't check the bag didn't have to pay it. So with the resort fee it's this blanket charged for things that used to just be included in <laughs> expected to be included in renting a room for a day i mean it, it's uh they will now look for every little thing that you would be accustomed to like a coffee pot in your room or uh, certainly the gym is, is a uh, popular one or a newspaper sure. or a bottle of water these are now all wrapped into the
0: resort fee my thanks to Arnie and to John Ostra, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel Podcast. For more conversations with the leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to listen, rate, or review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for continuous updates on breaking travel news, just log on to petergreenberg.com.